the third century before Common Era, King Ashok took over much of India and indeed uh, much of present-day Afghanistan, Pakistan, Nepal, Bhutan, and even a bit of China. What you see here on the screen now is one of the original pillars that he built all across his territory. Now what happened was <clears throat> he felt very bad, so the story goes, about all the violence involved in his taking over all of that territory. So, as you can see here, um, symbolically demonstrated, he, he gave up violence. See? Throwing the sword in. And uh, that's from a movie, by the way. You can watch it. Anyway, uh, he became Buddhist. He became devoutly Buddhist. And he spread Buddhism all across the land, uh, as I mentioned, into present-day Pakistan, into present-day China, and all over the ancient world. Um, this was long before the Lotus Sutra. This was in Theravada times. The third Theravada council, as mentioned in previous episodes, was, uh, was held under his reign. Uh, so that, I believe, was the establishing of what became known as the Mauryan Empire. Now, <clears throat> why do I bring this up? Uh, well, later on, uh, of course, the, the, the Muggles took over. They were Islamic. They were from uh, present-day Afghanistan, and they took over India. And uh, they, they seemed to work out a sort of relationship with the Hindu population, but they really didn't like the Buddhists. Um, so they did everything they could to wipe out Buddhism. So Buddhism was basically all but erased from India. Um, and it was because of Ashok, a thousand-some-odd years earlier, that uh, that it survived, um, you know, and others who later on brought Buddhism outside of of India. Um, so after the Mughal Empire started to fall apart, as you probably know, a lot of the Western colonial powers—the French, the Dutch, the Portuguese, and so on—and then most notably the British—they uh, the British ended up kind of, you know, winning out over those other uh, uh, imperialists and becoming the dominant dominator of India. And then um, if you haven't seen Mani Karnika, check that out. Here's a, a nice little image. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, they were upset. They were upset. And, uh, and so as a result of that rebellion, that attempted revolution, that attempted throwing off of the British in the uh, the late 1840s, the British really came in with a lot of forces and said, this is ours. And so they, they basically claimed India as part of, <clears throat> as the jewel in the crown of, the, uh, of the, the British Empire. Anyway, so that lasted for a hundred years. And then eventually, after, you know, World War II, the British had kind of been, been worn down don't want to say thanks to any of the people that wore them down, but they had been worn down, and, and uh, they, they, the, the Indians threw them off and uh, declared independence. And when they did, uh, Mahatma Gandhi and the other founders of the new country, the Republic of India, chose for the national emblem the top part of the uh, Pillar of Ashok, which is four lions back-to-back -back with a base 
uh, with some elaborately carved uh, animals around the base. And that became the national emblem. And as you can see, hopefully you can see this. Are you able to see this at all, even a little bit? Uh, yeah, you can kind of see it there on the money. This is a 10 rupee piece. Uh, this is a 20 rupee piece, which I think is a new thing. I just started seeing them appear relatively recently. And uh, here you have it on the, uh, the five, five rupees, basically like a nickel. Anyway, <clears throat> so yeah, it's a, it's a symbol of Indian patriotism in present day. And it's a symbol, it's an ancient symbol of Buddhism. As I mentioned, it was shown as far as Shanghai, China. Um, if I didn't show it before, then you're seeing it now. That's a, a, like a representation. The pillar became so synonymous with Buddhism, with early original Buddhism, that, that even in like Chinese temples that were built under the Maoist government, they still kept the pillar of Ashok because it's so... Uh, ingrained into the tradition of, of the, into the ancient tradition of Buddhism, even though he's an Indian king. <clears throat> so anyway, I just felt like bringing that up for no particular reason. Yeah, check that out. <laughs> Of course I stood up for the whole thing. Did you? I just, uh, you know, edited it down to keep this episode from uh, running too long. Anyway, um, so yeah, as I mentioned in the previous episode, Priyal and her sister Navi and I, sister, best friend, uh, you know, sister from another mister, as it were. You know, I mean, they're best friends, but they insist that they are sisters. Um, Navi, she's from South. Uh, we, got, we were married in uh, a temple in uh, Tamil that was her family's temple, uh, you know, the local temple there in a, a very small rural part of Tamil, which is the most southern tip of India, the most Indian part of India, some say. I'll, I'll just leave it at that. In fact, it, that part wasn't even actually included in uh, the Mauryan Empire. Ashok never even got down there. That's how, like, OG they are down there. They still speak the language, basically, that, uh, <clears throat> that's carved into the Indus River Valley civilization in the, the archaeological ruins. Before those Sanskrit guys with their Vedas came along, Johnny come lately, 5,000 years ago, you know. So, anyway... Uh, so, what am I talking about? Yeah, so we, we just went up to Himachal Pradesh, which is a state up north. We flew into Punjab, which is fun because it's Punjab. You know, it's where the Sikhs and the cool music comes from. Yeah, you know, uh, of course that's a matter of opinion. I, I enjoy it at times. Anyway, um, and uh, you know, we just landed in, in Punjab and then drove to Himachal Pradesh. And... Uh, we, we stayed in a place called Kasoli. There you can see some of the trees there. It was very nice. And um, yesterday, we drove to a nearby area that wasn't Kasoli proper, but let me consult my notes on the secret screen. It was uh, Sabatu, a <clears throat> the, uh, the cantonment town with an historic association with the Anglo-Nepalese War. 
and uh, it is now the center of the first Gorka rifles. And the fourth, I didn't get one for the fourth, it'd be green. I got the first one, because it's the first one, right? Yeah. No offense to the fourth one. I'm sure you guys are awesome. By the way, they're also sponsoring today's uh, episode. Sorry for the people on the podcast that aren't seeing all of this. This is one you might want to tune in for the visuals uh, just at the beginning of this. And we will jump into the reading, I promise. Um, So, yeah, briefly, the history there. There's a town, there's a city called Gorka in Nepal. And at one point in the mid-1700s, the king of Gorka got his army which were known as the Gurkha, and they had these curved blades, and they kept their hats at an angle, apparently, and they were really fierce fighters. And he went around and conquered all of what we now call Nepal. I think there were 23 kingdoms, I'm not sure, but he got them all under his reign. Then he moved himself and his family to Kathmandu, and they became the ruling family of Kathmandu up until a tragedy that I won't go into because it's actually too horrible, and it would bring down the mood. Uh, a couple of decades ago, or less, not very long ago, um, the royal family died. Look it up. It's, uh, it's worth looking up. Anyway, so now they, they have a, a prime minister and everything. I believe their prime minister is a Maoist communist prime minister. Um, China has been doing their best to like get buddy-buddy with Nepal and kind of whisper in their ear like Wormsthorpe or whatever in... Uh, uh, Anyway, Lord of the Rings, too. Anyway, uh, you know, talking about how, how shitty India is. And don't forget they did this to you. And they, oh, you deserve to have that. And so Nepal, like, if you go to Nepal, they don't have a whole lot of nice things to say about India. Usually, usually, depending on who you talk to. But uh, so their version of history is a little different from, you know, in the way India recalls it. Um, you know, and, and I was telling my friend Ryan that, uh, well, yeah, Nepal didn't, like, exist before the 1700s. And he was like, oh, don't tell them that. You know, like, I mean, I, I mean, it didn't exist as a separate entity. Like, if you go back to the 1300s, Bihar and Nepal were all kind of part of the same kingdom. I mean, maybe from their point of view, they would say that once upon a time, Bihar was part of Nepal. It's probably how they would frame it. Uh, but anyway, <clears throat> you know. It's a matter of perspective. So what happened was, okay, so so in the midst of all that original, you know, going around and, and ha ha, it's mine, you know, so these Gurkha from Gorkha came into India and said, it's mine, you know, and at that time, as I mentioned, the British were, you know, kind of running things. Uh, it was before they were properly, you know, the rulers, before they said, this is ours, but when the British East India Company was like, running their business here. Um, so, so yeah, they, they got an army together, and so the British fought the Nepal, the Nepali Gurkhas for rights to the territory of, you know, Himachal Pradesh and probably much of elsewhere. And the British won. And the British were like, hey, I like your style, you crazy Nepali guys with your curved blades and your hats, you know? Your hats, see? That's what they, that's the kind of iconic image. And so it's a, an iconic, famous image in Nepal. And they, some people who are familiar with it in the Nepal context get totally baffled when they find out that there's like a, a Gurkha regiment of the Indian army. But it goes back to those days when the British were like, hey, I like your style. Come work for us and, you know, we'll defend India together. And then, so they became part of the Indian army uh, for hundreds of years. And then after the British left, the Gurkha 
you know, remained a part of the, uh, the British Army. So anyway, that's my, the limits of my knowledge about that. Feel free to comment below if I've messed any of that up or if you have anything to add about that. And without further ado, I will get to today's reading. <sighs> so the books are still on their way from London. Uh, so we're still reading this polyliterature book, which is an overview of polyliterature. And uh, yeah, so let's get right to it, shall we? <clears throat> Picking up right where we left off. They brought with them books of various sorts on the Dhamma and the Vinaya, which were not extant in Ceylon. In 1802, Burmese monks were invited to Ceylon to introduce the Burmese Upasamapada. Subsequently, Sinhalese monks went to Burma and studied the Abhidhamma. I got the Amidama, or I've got something about the Abhidhamma. Maybe we can work that into this Theravada section of uh, Buddhist books that we're going to be doing for the next several years. Anyway, uh, on the and on their return, they brought back Pali books written by Burmese monks. Toward the end of the 19th century, King Mindonmin, whose tutor, Panasami, had written the Sasanavamsa, only a few years before, convened a fifth council, and then in parentheses, 1868 to 1871. I don't know if that means it took three years to have this council, or the council was somewhere in those years. Maybe it'll become clear as we read. Where under the presidency of the king, uh, eminent monks and teachers, the king eminent, Monks and teachers read or recited the sacred texts to restore the best readings. The complete text of the Tipitaka was engraved on 1729, 729 stone slabs around the Kuthodal Pagoda in Mandalay. The dates on the slabs indicate that the texts had probably already been carved before the council was hold, held, excuse me, and were then corrected in the light of any discussion. The Mandalay slabs were re-inked and copied for the sixth council, which was held in Rangoon in 1954 to 1956, to mark the 2,500th anniversary of the Buddha's birth. Ooh, okay, so let's see. Just, let's just do some quick math here. So what they're saying is if, if we assume 1965, then BC 35 would be 2,000 years before that, which means BC 535 is the Buddha's birthday. I wonder how accurate that is. Okay, moving right along. Uh, according to the oriental tradition of chronology. All right. <clears throat> we are informed that a draft edition of the Tipitaka commemorates uh, commentaries and sub-commentaries based upon the Fifth Council edition, which had been revised after comparison with texts from other countries, 
was prepared by a body of scholars. This was then checked and re-edited by a large number of Burmese Mahateras and simultaneously by a smaller number of Sinhalese monks. The final version was decided upon, parentheses, not without argument, and parentheses, by boards of reviewers composed of Burmese, Sinhalese, and Thai monks. The new editions were then ready for printing. The task of the council, spread over two years, was the ceremonial recitation and formal confirmation of the new editions. Although invited, no representative of Cambodia or Laos was able to attend the meetings for scrutinizing for scrutinizing the new editions, but the Cambodians and Laotians are reported to have given their assent to the decisions arrived at by the representative of the other countries, the representatives of the other countries, I should say. While the vast majority of monks present at the Sixth Council were Burmese, recognition was given by the other countries by appointing their representatives as chairman for the various sessions. It is not inappropriate to talk of a Burmese or Siamese or Sinhalese tradition for the transmission of a particular text and the differences which we find between the readings of the uh, manuscript belonging, the manuscripts belonging to the various traditions. It says MSS. I had to remember what that meant. Uh, Various traditions must go back to the councils which have been held from time to time in the different countries. The value of each tradition will depend upon the care with which evidence for variant readings was sifted, 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 and the criteria which were adopted as the basis of the decisions which were made. We have, of course, no way of discovering this for the earlier councils. <clears throat> a little bit of short, shortening of the reading, because uh, I, I also wanted to mention, for, for those of you watching mostly, that uh, I, I had gotten a bunch of these, st- uh, these hang- wall hangings of Maya Devi, or Queen Maya, she is the uh, mother of the Buddha, which is sort of interesting, considering Maya, in another context, means the realm of illusion. So to say the Buddha was born from Maya is kind of like, hmm. I'm not saying that the Buddha is Maya or that you know, awake, but it's born from. Of course, I'm sure that there's you know, that's as silly as saying you know, uh, can you go to the store? Ah, cans were invented by Napoleon. So what you're saying is connected to Napoleon. It's probably that absurd is what I'm saying, you know, because it, it's all new to me. Um, Maya Devi is the Pali name of the mother of the Buddha, where Maya, I believe, is a Sanskrit word. So it might even not even be a proper, uh, you know, pun <laughs> in the sense of being both a homogram and a homophone. Uh, a proper pun has has to have two different linguistic origins, I think. I mean, if you get really 
anal retentive about it. So she is the mother of... Da, 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 da. Here's the infant Buddha, the baby Buddha pointing up. Mother and baby. You notice he's missing from up there. He's normally right there. So keep an eye on that spot in the next video, and you'll see. Now you know who that is. It's the infant Buddha uh, that you see the big statue of at Lumbini. And... Uh, Okay, so that was that's all that's all about that, and uh, so I wanted to move on to the Sasana Vamsa because I, I want to play a little special something at the end here, which I'll mention. You know, I'll I'll explain more in depth after we read this for a few moments, a few minutes, but from the Sasana Vamsa, which, as I've mentioned before, is not the Sasana Vamsa. It is the Sasana Vamsa. It's just not in English. It's commentary on the Sasana Vamsa, photocopied, and. Uh, shoved into a Word document and then published and so on and so forth. Okay, so picking up where we left off. Oh wow, did we not get to the French last time? Oh no! <sighs> I thought we did, I thought we read this French last time. Wow. You know what, I'm gonna look into that and uh, before I go and read a bunch of French that neither of us understand in a horrible, horrible accent, I will research that and find out if I read it already in the previous episode. But for now, I will get to the special thing. Um, now, in, in, in a couple episodes ago, we had a little bit of, uh, a little bit of, uh, you know, Vajrayana, you know, in, in I, I forget what form it was. I, I, there was a little bit of Vajrayana injected into an episode, and then uh, then there was a little bit of I think Zen. I, I think because I was sitting on the Zafu and talking about how meditation is the most important thing, that I called that an injection of Zen. But uh, for today, I want to do a little bit more of you know this. I uh, this is Zen. This is the man who went to China and uh, learned Chan. And he came back to Japan and taught it to others. But because he was Japanese, he couldn't, he didn't pronounce the word chan as chan. He pronounced it as zen. So really, that was the birth of zen. However, before you at me, um, what, they, what he calls zen is what everybody else had previously called chan. So the definition of zen is that it's chan, right? Okay. But, uh, but then with Dogen talking with his mouth and establishing temples and monasteries in Japan, he began a rich tradition which can be maybe right, rightly called Japanese Zen as opposed to Chinese Zen, which is actually just Chong. It, it's kind of silly to call it Chinese Zen, right? That's like uh, using a Latin word for something in the Old Testament and saying Jewish that, right? It's the Jewish sanctum, you know, like as opposed to saying whatever they would have said. Okay, bad example. Maybe, you know, okay, okay. You get where I'm going with it. Um, so anyway, uh, I love these books. There's four volumes. This is, these are all the lectures of Shobogenzo that he gave in the 1200s. So we're jumping forward a lot. Um, 
we're, we're currently diving into Theravada. This Sasanavamsa and Burmese stuff is like two minutes ago, um, you know, like the 1800s. And it's not my intention to be in the 1800s in Burma. It's just kind of what we have right now while we're waiting for the Pali uh, canon to arrive. And then my intention is to be diving back into like the first council, if I can, and the second council and the commentaries and all these things. I really want to get into that stuff. So that's what you have to look forward to if you stay tuned to Edward Reed's Buddhist Books podcast. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I don't want to be so strict that I never even mention other, th other time periods and other, other forms of Buddhism, you know, like Vajrayana in Tibet or in Sh or Shingon, which is Vajrayana in Japan, or uh, Mahayana, different forms of Mahayana, and so on and so forth. Uh, so Zen is a very unique kind of thing. And... Um, Without going, without talking your ear off about it too much, when I, as I was reading these, there were some chapters that struck me really hard. And uh, Dogen talks a lot, though. He does, he does talk a lot, and he'll talk in circles and kind of repeat himself and talk about how those other idiots down the street at that Buddhist monastery are, are useless bags of skin and stupid people, and maybe they were, you know. But, uh, but so what I would occasionally do I did this, I think, three times, was I would take one of his lectures and I would go through and just take certain uh, sentences or phrases and just kind of arrange them down the middle of a page so that I took a rambling lecture that went on for like three or four pages and made it into a concise poem that blows your mind. I mean, if you, if you have the patience to read the lecture, it blows your mind. So what, I, what my attempt was, was just to take the meat of it and uh, the part that blows your mind, you know. And uh, so, so here's a man <clears throat> that was born, I think, in the early 1200s, right? Uh, maybe late, middle, or very late 1100s. And he went to uh, China and he met with a Soto Zen master and spent, I think, three years working with him. And, Shob and, and Master Dogen came back to... Um, to Japan and started establishing monasteries. And he was a brilliant teacher and, you know, very poetic soul. And he, I believe, you know, uh, had a clear vision of what the Buddha was about, you know. Um, so, so, yeah, so this is a man in the 1200s. You know, uh, as we mentioned, the Buddha was presumably born in the 1550s or whatever that was, uh, or f 550s BC. So this is a man born 1700 years after the Buddha. So I don't, but you know, but at a certain point, it's like you can be separated by this much di distance or time, but if you're keyed into the heart of something, then uh, it doesn't matter, you know, how much time or how much distance separates you. Because I think that what he was speaking was really close to the heart of what the Buddha is about. Um, or maybe I'm biased and my concept of, of the Buddha is, uh, is distorted or filtered by, by Dogen. And, you know, that's part of what I am going to find out on this, on this journey that you're, you get to go with me if you've chosen to listen to this podcast or watch. Um, is, is how much of my understanding of the Buddha is really the Buddha, you know? Um, 
And how much of it is uh, influenced by, you know, Mahayana, Vajrayana, Zen, my dad, uh, who knows, Alan Watts, right? The New Age, uh, you know, scene in, in California or whatever, yoga or whatever. Um, I want to I know. I want to know the Buddha better. So that's what I'm doing. I'm trying to know the Buddha better by reading the, the Theravadan uh, books. But for today, I'm going to share with you one of the poems. Um, this was a video I made. Uh, my friend's son features prominently. Uh, my friend back then, I haven't spoken to her in a while, but she was living, she was my roommate back then. Uh, but anyway, uh, <clears throat> so yeah, uh, the footage is from, from the Huntington, <clears throat> the Japanese gardens at the Huntington in Pasadena. And uh, yeah, it's the words of Dogen. I, all I did was take words out. I did not change any words. I, I think I might have uh, changed Dharma to something, reality or law, depending on the context, just to kind of make it a little bit more universally uh, applicable so that a person didn't have to be Buddhist to appreciate the poetry. And it kind of blows my mind because even from a scientific, like if you've heard, if you've heard Neil deGrasse Tyson, I know like not everybody's into Neil deGrasse Tyson, but you know, every once in a while he goes on these rants where he talks about the, you know, I don't, I don't feel small looking at the vastness of the universe. I feel enormous because I'm made of star stuff. I'm made of the same stuff that's out there. And so on that level, Dogen goes further out, but in a way that does not disagree much with, uh, with what we know now from, from testing and test tubes, modern science, right? And even you could maybe a little bit of quantum, but, uh, you know, I'm not getting into some weird, you know, uh, what the bleep territory. I mean, I'm talking real science. I'm talking about how the world works, how the universe works, galaxies and stuff, right? Um, <clears throat> so with that in mind, I would like to share with you and we'll close with... Uh, with the poem that I crafted from the words of Master Dogen from Shobogenzo, I give you flowers in space. Learn and practice this moment of a flower opening and its brightness, color, and form. Because we are utilizing a true human being without rank, this state is not I and not anyone else. And so we call what is indefinite the self. Natural realization is the very moment of opening flowers and bearing fruit. In a single spark, there are hundreds and thousands of clusters of blue lotus flowers. And they open and spread in space. They open and spread on the ground. They open and spread in the past. And they open and spread in the present. To experience the actual time and the actual place of fire is to experience blue lotus flowers. We should not pass by the time and the place of blue lotus flowers, but should experience them. The opening of flowers is the occurrence of the world. Not only in spring and in autumn do flowers and fruit exist. Existence time always has flowers and fruit. Flowers are present in human trees, Flowers are present in human flowers, and flowers are present in withered trees. Picking up a flower and winking an eye are all the universe. When we have seen flowers in space, we can also see flowers vanish in space. 
When clouded eyes are balanced, flowers in space are balanced. When clouded eyes are non-arising, flowers in space are non-arising. It is not hindered by arising and passing. It can cause arising and passing to arise and pass. Learning of flowers in space may take many forms. There is what is seen by clouded eyes, what is seen by clear eyes, what is seen by the Buddha's eyes, what is seen by the patriarch's eyes, what is seen by the eyes of truth, what is seen by blind eyes, what is seen by 3,000 years, what is seen by 800 years, what is seen by hundreds of kalpas, and what is seen by countless kalpas. All these see flowers in space, but space itself is multifarious, and flowers also are diverse. Although there are originally no flowers, now there are flowers. A fact which is true for peach and plum trees, and true for apricot and willow trees. The apricot yesterday was without flowers, but the apricot in spring has flowers. Still, when the season arrives, and just then flowers bloom, this may be the flowers time, or it may be the flowers arriving. This exact moment of flowers arriving is never a random event. Looking at the various colors of space flowers, one imagines the limitlessness of space fruits. Flowers always seem to be imbued with all colors, but colors are not always limited to flowers. Other seasons also have blues, yellows, reds, whites, and other colors. Space flowers inevitably bear space fruit and drop space seeds. Flowers in space exist on the basis of unfolding from the ground, and the whole ground exists on the basis of the opening of flowers. Flowers in space cause both the ground and space to unfold. <laughs>